What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely, definitely the sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. And as it seems to always happen, I am once again guiding the ship today with the whole crew. <laughs> we show up for but you. I we am, show up for you. <laughs> exactly. But I am so excited to have them all here with me. The marvelous and meticulous Lindsay Gibbs with a sharp pen and a big laugh. She's the sports writer for Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Hey, Lindsay. You are right, Amira. You are on today. Oh, I'm telling you, listen. The brilliant Jessica Luther, who will deadlift 200 plus pounds while baking you delicious cupcakes. I mean, what can't she do? She's a freelance journalist in Austin, Texas. Hey, Jess. Hi, Amira. The tenacious Shireen Ahmed, sports writer, activist, our resident Canadian and pajama queen, fresh off of her birthday and checking in from Toronto. Hey, Shireen. Hello. And my fellow historian, my professor pal, but you won't catch her in a tweed jacket and elbow patches. <laughs> nope, she's probably rocking chucks and hilarious wit. That's right. It's Brenda Elsie, associate professor, Hofstra University. What's up, Doc? Hello. What's up, you, Doc? <laughs> you know, I'm chilling. It's great. I'm happy. First, we're going to talk tennis. It's back. Uh, We are here to reflect on the Australian Open and bring you some news from the tennis world. Then we're going to turn our attention to the Super Bowl. Jess interviews ESPN's Mina Kimes on the upcoming game, plus a few other storylines around the NFL. Then the five of us will dive into the mayhem that is Super Bowl 53. And yes, I had to Google what the Roman numerals meant. Um, But I will try to stay calm and collected as we talk about all things Patriots, Rams, the matchup, the halftime show, the cost and consequences of this mega sporting event, and the storylines we have our eye on heading into next Sunday. But first, we must talk briefly about hockey, specifically the NHL All-Stars Weekend, um, which for the second year invited some women hockey players to hang out. The skills competition specifically this year promote the women's hockey upcoming matchup between the U.S. A in Canada in February. So Brianna Decker from the U.S. Women's National Team, along with Canadians uh, Renata Fast and Rebecca Johnston, previewed events at the skills competition. And the United States' speedy Kendall Coyne Schofield became the first woman to compete in the skills competition. And there was, let's just say, um, happenings and reactions. <laughs> um, Shireen, I know you have thoughts. What's I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, first of all, shout out to CCM who paid Brianna Decker for actually winning the um, competition, the passing accuracy. I think I also want to say this because it's important to me that Victory Press put out a note. As much as we're so excited about uh, Kendall Coyne Schofield, it must be said and it must be said by us, uh, there was an editor's note from Zoe of Victory Press, and we love NWHL, we love C- the C-Dub, 
and were very, very happy and annoyed and simultaneously irritated that men were like, oh, wow, women can play hockey and they can skate fast, because that was so much of the reaction. And it does need to be said that Kendall Coyne Schofield, and I'm quoting from Victory Press, is notably friends with and has defended accused rapist Patrick Crane and has also in the past tweeted and liked tweets about how NFL anthem protests are disrespectful to the U.S. military, which does not align with the Victory Press values. And I didn't know this, and I missed that post, and Dr. Courtney Sito sent it to me, presumably because she knows we're going to talk about it this morning. But also, I think that's important to keep in light, like when we raise up, there needs to be a place in the conversation to talk about the importance of women in hockey and particularly being included because Coyne Sheffield was the first woman to ever officially participate in the All-Star Weekend. Um, there needs to be a place to talk about this because it's not something that we can overlook. So I have thoughts. I loved that the U.S. and Canadian women took photos together. I have to say that. I thought that was really important. I loved Gritty. I loved all of Gritty. And I was really happy with his. I think he's my Patronus, honestly, even though I'm not a fan of the Flyers, but that's okay. Um, I was really happy to see so many women journos there interviewing Coin Schofield afterwards because that was the first my reaction was there's that many women covering hockey. Of course there is. We just never see them. So like Brianna Decker, Mad Propster, Renata Fast is incredible. It's just it was a happy weekend, but it was a weekend where many women I know were groaning and going, yes, they play hockey. Yes, they're amazing. For fuck's sake, can we please elevate these women in their own right, in their own leagues, in their own realms without having the NHL included? Because the child is gross. Yeah. Right. Like it was kind of this. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, yeah, I agree. And I understand the frustration, but also we're just not there yet. And steps like this have to be taken in order to get there. Right. And it's it's frustrating for the people on the ground doing the work to elevate women's hockey day in and day out when something like this happens and gets much more attention than any of their work. And it's also a necessary step, unfortunately, to like get where we need to go. Um but yeah, it, it, it's thrilling, and there were tons of shots on social media of girls sitting at home watching, you know, the performances Aww. of Kendall and of Brianna, and seeing what they were doing. And there was a lot of talk this weekend about, you know, the the famous quote, like you can't be what you can't see, and how you know just a weekend like this will have impact for you know, the next generation that we might not be able to measure for a while. Now it's just up to everyone to keep it going so that, you know, they can get now the attention on their own accord and not just for being with the men. Anybody else have thoughts, reactions? So for those who didn't watch, um, what happened was that uh, Cone Choyfield was uh, included in the official competition. They did a kind of bit where somebody had to scratch and who could possibly fill their place. And then she ran over to the ice really fast. Like, so it was also like a spectacle to, you know, leading up to uh, her participation in it. Um, but the other thing that happened was that Brianna Decker, who was not officially in it, she was just demonstrating the passing portion of the skills competition, which is not the funnest or most notable part of it because it's, like, random and kind of frustrating for a lot of players and, like, it's a weird competition. But when she was demonstrating it, uh, there was a video that clocked her at a time under the time of the winner. So what started trending was Pay Decker saying she should – get the prize money she should get the twenty five thousand um, dollars 
because she, you know, obviously was like competing and actually posted, according to that first video, a time that was lower than the eventual winner of the competition. And so that also generated a conversation after that. Did anybody see that happening? Yep. And to be fair, CCM stepped up her sponsor and said that they would pay her. And, you know, there was a lot of lauding for that. Well, again, the NHL remained quiet. <laughs> and on top of everything, the NHL went back and then said, oh, wait, actually, we did the, her official time and she didn't really win. But, you know, if she had one, maybe we would. Typically shady, typically like shady so, and, and, and um, unnecessary kind of, of, of the NHL. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> it was so unnecessary. NHL, here's a big win for you. Just pay her. Like, you will get so much good publicity. Just pay her. And yet they have to overcomplicate things, which is just par for the course. Jess? Yeah, uh, I don't watch hockey. That's not a secret. Um, but <laughs> I, when I was on Twitter, when all this was happening, uh, I'm just going to... Lindsay is totally right that, like, we need these moments, and that's hard to... to um, admit and deal with but like it, that's true but I'm also with Shireen on this so like I don't know anything about hockey but I think I maybe saw the NHL tweet where they're like she's so fast when they were showing the video and I was like yeah no shit like I don't know at some point I'm just can we just this idea that women athletes aren't good like that every time we have to be shocked I, I said in the slack yesterday that it reminded me of when Doris Burke once dribbled a ball and like people lost their minds. They're like, Oh my God, Doris Burke can dribble a basketball. Right, exactly. And it was like, yeah, well, Doris well, Burke. she was, I mean, she was, was in high like, heels. Yeah. So, you know. And so <laughs> I just, that, that reaction is like, well, oh, I'm so tired right. of it. Uh, even as I understand that the stage on which it was happening is important, but I don't know, man. Um, but good. I mean, good. I, yeah. I am. I'm very I mean, happy about the girls it becomes, that saw it. And it also becomes hard because it it becomes this metric like, okay, they can compete with the boys, and therefore they have value yes. or they have worth. Yeah. And there's it inevitably you get a lot of comments like, uh, they're taking over this sports too, or this is like you know PC run amok, or <laughs> oh so and so wasn't even trying and she still barely beat him. Like none of it's in good faith. Like it it's it can be ridiculously irritating and then like Lindsay said like you you know pointed out Jess then you see the faces of girls and you're like oh this is also why representation matters yeah. so um, again big rivalry coming up yeah. February Team USA Team Canada and that's one of the things they were there to promote so um, resources eyes eyeballs all on the women's game there's a lot of good stuff coming uh, our way in in the next few weeks So now on to the show. Tennis, Grand Slams are back. For Lindsay, for all the folks who didn't get up this last week at like 3.30 in the morning to continue to watch the Australian Open, uh, can you just give us a little recap of what went down? What what did we miss if we, you know, slept? (laughs) Well, you missed everything, so you should feel really bad about yourself (laughs) if you slept through. No, just kidding. Uh, Australian Open is so, so hard for us uh, in the States uh, or on this continent in general so essentially Naomi Osaka won the Australian Open so she this is her second Grand Slam in a row she's only 21 years old she's now the number one player in the world the first player uh the first Asian player to ever be number one which is remarkable considering how many people there are in Asia (laughs) 
like, and of course, she is the first uh, Haitian to be number one as well. Although, uh, you know, she officially re- represents Japan in competition. So that's why a lot of the records go there. But we don't want to yes, overlook her Haitian yes. descent, of course, here on Burn It All Down. Um, <laughs> but it's incredible. It, it was just incredible. She beat yeah. Petra Kvitova in a marvelous Me too. Final. Me too. I'll admit I was fading in and out during it um, while I was trying to stay awake. But it was so good that I just kept uh, kept sitting up in bed and trying to like hold my eyes open to watch uh, Petra Kvitova's story. Of course, she's a two-time Wimbledon champion, one of the nice, nicest players on tour. Everyone will tell you that. And she's still on the comeback from being randomly attacked by a burglar and having her left hand, her tennis hand, completely severed with a knife. So there was a lot of fear two years ago that we'd never see her back on the tennis court. And all of a sudden, you know, here she is in her first non-Wimbledon Grand Slam final. And the hope is that we're going to get to see her fighting for these moments for years to come because... The the tour is so much better with Petra Kvitova at the top. Um, In the quarterfinals, the big match that I think we'll probably want to talk about was Karolina Pliskova, who Osaka beat in the semifinals. She took out Serena Williams after being down. Serena was up 5-1 in the third set before there was a foot fault called, which was, uh, you know, it was, she did actually foot fault. And then she twisted her ankle on the next point and was just never the same. But Pliskova played incredibly well and handled herself really well, was able to come back from a 5-1 deficit to win that set and to make it to the semifinals. So those are kind of my big takeaways from the event, as well as Danielle Collins, an American, 25-year-old American who went to college um, all four years at UVA, who made it to the semifinals and a miraculous run, really. Kind of a Cinderella story here. What about for you guys? What are your biggest takeaways from this tournament? Yeah, well, I obviously had a great time. I did want to just point out that it was 2.30 in the morning where I live, where I got up to watch. I watched Simona Halep and Serena play. Uh, and then I, like Lindsay, went in and out with the final between Osaka and Kvitova. Um, I actually fell asleep deep into the second set at the point where I thought Osaka was going to win. And then I woke up and they were in the third set. So I had missed, I had missed that. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I take away from this, Naomi Osaka almost lost multiple times throughout this tournament. She played multiple three setters where she had to come back where she had lost the first set and she had to battle. And that was even true in the final itself. Like she actually gave up three championship points on serve and Kvitova came back to break her in the second set. I later found out cause I had slept through it. Uh, and then she just pulled her shit together. I mean, what is she? 21. Is that right? 21. I mean, the mental fortitude 21. to do what she did over the last two weeks yep. is so impressive. And I think my other big takeaway from this tournament, it was a fun tournament. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I feel, and I don't know, Lindsay, how you feel about this, but um, the women's game, you know, a lot of the discussion right now is like what happens when the old guard retires on both sides, both for men and women. Uh, you know, Djokovic won uh, earlier this morning. He beat Nadal handily. Number one and number two, though, are still Djokovic and Nadal. Federer is still up there. You know, we talked about Murray before that he's going to be leaving the game. Um, but of course, on the women's side, Venus, Serena, uh, it the women's side seems so much more secure to me. Like, there are so many potential great tennis players. We have so much 
fun women's tennis coming up in our future um, from very young players. Uh, I just don't feel that on the men's side as much. Um, I do worry, like, what will happen when the now big three actually leave the game for the men. And I so I felt really good. It was really fun to watch the women and to think about what we're going to see in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's it's pretty well respected, you know, opinion because it's true. Like we saw yes. uh, Stefanos yeah, uh, Tsitsipas, I think is how you say his name. He's a Greek player, take down Federer, and he, that was really fun. But then he got completely crushed by Nadal in the semifinals. And there is still not a man on in pro tennis who is wow. Than I didn't even realize that. That's title, amazing. Yeah. Just absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely absurd, whereas the women's game is uh, is in such solid shape. But, it, you know, the women's game did need a player like Osaka to come in and really consolidate mm-hmm. her greatness in back-to-back tournaments like this, right? Because what the women's game has had is a lot of individual great performances, but not as much consistency. And I think for me, that's what was really exciting about the Australian mm-hmm. Open because Petra yeah. Kvitova had a phenomenal season last year. I believe she won five titles, but she didn't win at any of the slams. So now having her playing well at the slams, that mm-hmm. helps establish her at the top. Now we've got um, Naomi Osaki, you know, cons- getting her second slam, now being a number one. you still got players like yeah, Simona Halep amazing who match. Williams incredibly well in the quarterfinals. Really she was yeah. the number one. I know. What a tough draw for her. You know, she was really a draw loser. No. But, you know, you can't look at this and say yeah. she choked as the number one. You know, she got beat by Serena Williams. Serena's coming back. So, yeah, women's tennis is in a great place. It's going to be Indeed. such a fun year. And so, and then, of course, um, you know, Serena is still, you know, looking for that elusive oh geez i've lost 24 24 thank you. <laughs> uh, and and we all kind of were collectively watching uh when she was up 5-1 in that the third hard. set battling that was hard right battling back in the second set to force a third set um and up 5-1 kind of looking like she was going to take it and then maybe tweaked her ankle maybe felt like there's do you think that um, Pliskova stole the mat, like one up, like, was it a win on her part? Was it a meltdown? What was your reading of it besides like collective anguish of watching it happen in real time? It felt like both to me. Pliskova was really, really good. And she was really, really good at the moments that she needed to be. I mean, Chris Everett said it afterwards that like, it can be really hard to compete against someone who's injured. Like, what do you do? I mean, they're competitors. Yes. But like, that's a weird mental space to have to compete against someone you know is hurt like that just feels weird um but then she was just excellent at the end of that match and and she was excellent in the um did she win the first set uh in that match yeah and that was spectacular tennis so and Serena didn't look great like she the Halep match was phenomenal she was Serena looked like vintage Serena against Halep um a lot of the time and that I mean credit to Halep because she was wonderful in that match too uh I don't know. I think it was a combination of both. I know that Serena downplayed her ankle, but uh, tennis players, athletes in general, tend to downplay extensively their injuries unless they absolutely have to tell us something. Uh, so I don't really trust like her assessment afterwards of her own injury. But um, I, I do think it was it was a combo of the two things. And credit to Pliskova. Yeah, Lindsay. Yeah, I talked about it with Caitlin Thompson um, when we were talking about the Australian Open before on this podcast about how I don't think that Serena, Serena's still the same legend, but I think because of her time away, because the talent on the tour, she doesn't 
go on to the court with the same amount. Players know they can beat her right now. The top players know they can feel that they can beat her. A player like Carolina Pliskova, when she's playing her best tennis, she can still get beaten by a peak Serena, absolutely. But she also has the game to take down Serena. This wasn't a case of a low-ranked player playing an out-of-their-mind match or getting lucky, right? Carolina Pliskova is one of the best players in the world. And right now, where Serena's talent is, that can be challenged, right? Like, she can be challenged by her peers right now in a way that she hasn't always been able to be. To me, that's very exciting. It's going to make this number 24 that much harder. And one thing I want to note is Serena always, right before Serena hit 17, which was what she needed to tie um, Martina Navratilova and Steffi Graf, or excuse me, and Chrissy Everett, Mm -hmm. she she had a trouble getting that one. There were a few slams where she fell in early rounds where she was incredibly tense. Before she got to number 22 with Steffi, she got really tense. There were a few majors where she lost. These big milestones mean something to her. And this is the last one she has, this number 24. And I think it's in her head a little bit too. I don't want to say she's choked, but she's human. It's getting to her. She feels the pressure. of how hard it is to actually sometimes we take for granted how easy for her it is to win a grand slam because she has so many but it's hard yeah, it's like, real hard it's like it's really hard <laughs> next jess interviews mina kimes i'm honored today to join espn's mina kimes Mina wears a lot of hats at ESPN. She does wonderful long-form work for ESPN Magazine. You can catch her on TV on programs like Around the Horn and Highly Questionable. And she has an NFL-themed podcast titled, appropriately, The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. Lenny is her dog, and that fact alone tells you that the show is great. I've, I've asked Mina here to burn it all down to talk about the upcoming Super Bowl, which will air on CBS on Sunday, February 3rd, and to talk about the NFL season that was. So I want to start with the Super Bowl. It's going to be the New England Patriots surprise and the Los Angeles Rams, which leads me to my first question for you, Mina. The Rams? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Like, is this a surprise how well the Rams did this year or did NFL experts expect this? So I picked the Pats and the Saints. Okay, Um, well, uh, well, (laughs) you're technically right. I should have been the Saints. Uh, it's interesting thinking of the Rams because actually I think before the season, they did seem to be the favorites. You know, they had this extremely active free agency. They were, they spent a ton of money um, on players. They have some contracts. They really went all in on this season. And after last year, their success and what McVay did, I think actually a lot of people were pretty high on them. And then at the beginning of the season, you know, starting out undefeated that continued. And then, about two thirds of the way through, they had a rough patch, and that's when people stopped believing in them. And the Saints, I think, kind of overtook them as the most popular pick to come out of the NFC. So, to answer your question, I think they, they were underdogs by the end of the season, not at the beginning. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so when you look at this matchup between the Patriots and the Rams, who who's the underdog going into the Super Bowl? Oh, haven't you heard? It's the Patriots. <laughs> Uh, who do you uh, who do you think <laughs> yeah well so i think the line slightly favors the patriots which i think is uh accurate and okay. correct and i, I picked the patriots um to win largely just because of how they've been so dominant well not really i mean they obviously the game against the chiefs is very close but they've, they've looked really good in the postseason and they've looked good in ways that 
suggests they've overcome some of their issues from the regular season. Now, the, re- hmm. the reason the Patriots are saying they're, everyone thinks they suck, which again is not true, is because people were accurately pointing out they did have some deficiencies during the regular season. Tom Brady, this was he was good, but this was not his best year. Uh, they didn't have much hmm. of a pass rush. Those have been those things have been sort of rectified, in, as, as often happens with the Patriots. Uh, so I think it's right that they're favored. Um, but when you actually look at the talent matchups at each position, they don't have a significant edge. Hmm. Okay. Well, that should make for a good game then. Um, are there? I mean, other than Tom Brady, I know there's going to be a, like a lot of talk about him, but are there specific players that we should watch from each team during the Super Bowl? The people who could make or break it for their teams. So on the side of the Rams, you're going to hear endless talk about Todd Gurley, right? Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, he was a viable, I didn't think so, but a lot of people seem to think he was an MVP candidate halfway during the season. Uh, and then in the last game, he was basically MIA. Right. He didn't get many snaps. CJ Anderson played a lot more than him. Uh, and he said he wasn't hurt. So there's, I think, questions about what his usage is going to look like. Was he actually hurt? Is he struggling? That sort of thing is going to be a huge issue. Um I also think on the Rams, obviously Aaron Donald is not only the best defender, he's the best player on that team. But I would look out for Kong Sue. You know, talking about mm-hmm. how they went on a signing spree in free agency, he was sort of a big pickup for them. It was pretty quiet during the regular season, but in the playoffs has really emerged as a huge, uh, not only a great run defender, but also a interior pass rusher alongside Aaron Donald. So I think he could have a huge game because that's always been the key to stopping Brady is getting a rush up the middle. On the Pat okay. side, um, I'm fascinated by Gronk because hmm. he really was not good this year. Okay, so the Patriots thing, you know, they, they were fine. Brady was fine. They're, some of the team was great. But Brady, Gronk was not Gronk. And then all of a sudden hmm. in this championship game, he looks better than he has in months. So I'm curious to see if that continues in the Super Bowl. Hmm. That's also interesting. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Gronk had that huge catch at the end of the game itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Brady went uh, to him, you know, on third down, man coverage, Eric Berry. He's him and Edelman are they're just his guys and and he proved to be reliable. Well, let's let's talk about the refereeing because it was a huge <laughs> deal this past weekend for the NFC and AFC championships. Uh, I don't watch a ton of NFL. I don't watch nearly as much football as I used to. Uh, the refing was very bad and also very important in both games, like both games came down to a lot of calls that the refs had to make that were very close. Um, so can you tell me for people like me uh, that don't watch nearly as much, is this normal that the refing is not great or that it plays such a big role in these games? I think it was exacerbated this past Sunday by a couple of things. One, that the games were extremely close, right? Like if the mm-hmm. Patriots had blown sure. up the Chiefs or whatever, we wouldn't really care if there were some bad calls, but we're talking about this is the first time ever that both games have gone to overtime, both types of games. So that, you know, puts a heightened focus on anything, everything. Uh, Personally, I think the calls in the Pats Chiefs game, there were a couple of bad ones. The roughing the pass on Brady was pretty bad, Uh, but they were kind of run of the mill bad calls. It was the no call in the Saints game that was not only incredibly egregious, but also cost them the game that I think has sort of made the refereeing such a big subject this week and actually created the possibility that we're going to see some changes in the rules. Yeah. I mean, one of my questions for you is like, if the Rams win, 
are we gonna like have to asterisk this this win for them because they shouldn't have <laughs> even made it in so i do you think that's um, gonna affect if they actually do pull this off that people will sort of wonder about that part of it you know people have a pretty short-term memory about a lot of things in the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this would be one of the, especially if they beat the Patriots, you know, as underdogs, I think then if anything, actually people will care less about the bad call because they'll feel like they earned it. Oh, um, Andrew, that's a good point. That's a good point. I also think it would be kind of hilarious if the Patriots lose to Nick Foles and then Jared Goff in the Super Bowl. So uh, that also will, <laughs> like, you know, it, it's amazing, like being in the, um, hot taking cottage industry or whatever like the amount of rage that we can work up on a day that ultimately subsides within three or four days is pretty amazing yeah well i think i saw today that there's like saints ticket holders season ticket holders are suing (laughs) the league over the refereeing so sports fans also have like a real dedication to blowing things up super like uh yeah i'd say i mean uh People get mad at me sometimes on the internet when I say all fans are bad. I don't mean all fans are bad. Like some fans are great, but what I mean is every sport and every team has crazy bad fans. There's, it's not unique to any team. And I, I like sports fan. I don't know. Sports make people nuts, man, including myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, me too. I got up in the middle of the night the other night to watch Serena Williams play tennis. So I mean, I can't say anything about it. Um. Looking back on the season that is now almost over, what were some of the things, the people, teams, or whatever that most surprised you this year? I did not expect Pat Mahomes to be as good as he was. I was very high on him after he had that one game, and I liked him as a prospect, and I love Andy Reid and that offense, and I thought they would be good. I didn't think he would be amazing. He should yeah. be the MVP. Just the level of skill and poise he's shown at so many points facing so many challenges uh, this year has been remarkable. And to me, that's the story of the season, uh, even though they're out. So that would be the number one thing I think that surprised me, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'd go with Mahomes. Um, I, my own Seattle team did better than I thought they would making it to the postseason. So I think that would be good. And and all the rookie quarterbacks, you know, I like Baker Mayfield a lot. Yeah. But I think him turning it around with the Browns and the way that all unfolded was probably the other most interesting and compelling storyline to me this year. That's Mahomes is interesting because he was so good. And I sort of wonder what will happen if he's – I mean, he can't repeat this this kind of level of performance next year. And I do sort of wonder what the reaction yeah. will be if and when he can't quite you know, live up to that level next year. Often when quarterbacks have like this great season that comes out of nowhere, it's not the first season, right? So, right. And it can be seen as like, well, what factors possibly contributed to this being an outlier? Was it the perfect scenario? Did they have this amazing offensive line? I mean, Dak Prescott's where he uh, was his first season is a good example, yeah. I think, where some regression should have been inevitable given some of the conditions that he was in. Just watching Mahomes, though, the, he's not the product of anything other than his own incredible talent. And I, he, like, I know I said he had a, a great incredible coach, incredible scheme, uh, very good offensive line, great weapons, but he does so many amazing things outside of those, outside of the scheme and outside of those variables that I'm inclined to think he's going to be really good next year too. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. It's exciting to watch him and it's always just fun when you have exciting players like that. Um, And so 
I, I do want to turn this before we end. Um, this is such a burn it all down kind of things to do too. Uh, but I wanted, I did want to talk to you. We talked so much on this program about sport and the role it plays in society and the NFL, you know, this as well as anyone that, um, we have a lot of cultural conversations around gendered violence when it comes to the NFL, especially domestic violence. And you wrote a really great piece two years ago. I looked it up. I was prepared about Tyreek Hill, uh, who's a Kansas City receiver, but who also pleaded guilty to domestic assault and battery by strangulation a few years back. And so I wanted to ask you where you think we are with this issue within the sport at this point. I mean, I don't think the NFL is ever going to get this right, whatever that means. Um, But I personally do think this is something they have to take very seriously um, and try to figure out what to do about it. So like, what are you, what are your thoughts on this now that we're two years out from the piece you read about Hill? Yeah. I I thought about that piece, Jessica, you know, watching the chiefs this year and thinking if when teams go to the Super Bowl, there's such a magnified focus on stars. Mm -hmm. And and Tyreek has not done interviews extensive interviews or kind of re-invited any discussion about his past. But he's also, in that piece, it was after his rookie year, I talked about, well, obviously just kind of like the complexity of thinking about how the NFL should handle it and how we should view him and talk about him, which is a whole, that's like a three-hour conversation. (laughs) But, um, you know, he's been, so to kind of, he's been quiet. He's obviously, you know, not been in the limelight for, and stayed out of any trouble off the field mm-hmm. um publicly anyways so it, it, i i kind of was thinking to myself huh i wonder like how people are going to talk about this what's the conversation going to be and he she didn't make it so it didn't happen so i i i i just don't know if i can say that the that anything's changed since then yeah I'm talking about sort of the not only the nfl's treatment of the issue but the broader conversation about it which is obviously um, came up again when when the Kareem Hunt incident happened, even though that wasn't domestic violence, you know. Um, right. He was it was assault. He assaulted a woman, and it feel it felt like to me that if anything's changed, it's simply that the NFL, which is extremely reactive and makes all of its decisions based on how the public will respond. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't think there's like a, a moral core there. That's that. I'm speaking of the NFL. Like, there's no morality that's motivating any of these decisions it's simply how can we mitigate the public relations issue and i I believe that more than ever now and i and i think perhaps they have a more i don't want to say sophisticated but more aggressive interpretation of that than they did say circa ray rice right sure Um, but that doesn't mean anything other than they're just being reactive in a different way. Yeah, that's interesting because when uh, the Washington NFL team took Foster, Reuben Foster, and Doug Williams went out and said all those <laughs> problematic things that he said about it, I mean, he did say, we just have to weather the PR. I mean, he said the beat up or like whatever. He used the worst terminology. But on some level, it was like, well, that's probably right. That's probably how they go into these, you know, when they make these decisions, how they how they actually uh, approach um getting through it right that it's not yeah it's really about the pr and that i just even if it was hard to hear it it did feel very honest <laughs> you're totally right it was like a weirdly transparent moment i think what struck me most about the cream hunt thing was so the chiefs cut him we learned that oh actually um you know he's had three incidents there were two other accusations of assault and over the course of like the last year or so and then he does this interview with Lisa Salters, Jessica, I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. And he mentions that he is thinking about 
getting therapy hmm. or he's and I'm and I watched that and I was like holy shit how has he not like how is that something that the even if the team didn't have access to the video or whatever which is a whole other thing having a player who has these sorts of accusations and this this confluence of incidents how do you not if you truly care about and they uh, what they claim to care about in terms of you know rehabilitation and and, and helping these these guys or whatever how does that not happen until now and, and right. that you know right. again we're focused so much on these like actions after things get out and whether they get cut who signs them but i think the, these teams still obviously have such a long way to go in terms of thinking well if we're going to grant second chances or if we're going to be thoughtful of this what does this look like on the inside yeah well, I feel like I could probably talk to you, Mina, about this for a really long time. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We are really excited to have you on. And it's always wonderful to have another female podcaster. So good Thank luck with everything. Much. Appreciate it. Okay, so it's that time of the year. Super Bowl is here. Super Bowl 53 will be played this Sunday, February 3rd, between the Patriots and the Rams in Atlanta, Georgia. But before we get to the game itself, I want to talk about the event, the spectacle, the cost of mega sporting events, because regardless who's playing, though it's usually the Patriots, um, I'm joking, kind of, not really. <laughs> uh, the event itself uh, churns every year and brings in some familiar problems, regardless of who's playing. Um, and sometimes they get lost behind the glittery, confetti-flying, media-frenzied, commercialized exterior. So let's dive in. Uh, Jess, what should we consider? Keep in mind. Oh, gosh, there's so much, right? Um, This is part of, like, the mega event thing. Uh, One of the first things that people have been talking about is the crackdown on homeless people. Uh, The city did a similar thing in 1996 during the Olympics, and both times they said that they weren't trying to shuffle homeless people away because of the mega event that was coming. Uh, But this is there's a pattern. They did this in 2016 in San Francisco, very famously in 2018 in Minneapolis, where I think there were, like, freezing temperatures and there was really concern over people's health and well-being um, and safety in, in all of that. Um, but these cities spend so much money to get the Super Bowl. And this is like one thing that I really wanted to address. Uh, so the Super Bowl on Sunday is going to be played in the new, the brand new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They just built it. It opened in 2017. The stadium cost the public at least $700 million and at the time was more than any other building in the NFL history. Uh, but this is a there's like a rash of these. So NFL stadiums have been built um, new ones, seven new ones have been built in the last 12 years, and they all end up hosting the Super Bowl. So it's clear that there's a connection for the the league. Like if you put all this money and and often um, I think I it's something like. Taxpayers contribute an average of about $250 million to build an NFL stadium. And then they host these events, and the events will generate somewhere between $30 and $130 million. And then this, like, it is just wild. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution back in June 2016 had a whole breakdown of the bid that Atlanta did with the league in order to get the Super Bowl. And it's insane. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it's just, it's too much. Um, The NFL expects public and private money in Atlanta to pay for hotel rooms for eight nights for each participating team, uh, rent-free use of the stadium, assignment of security officers, approximately 10,000 parking spaces for game day use that the NFL retains the parking revenue for, and then there's like a whole range of lesser items, banners. Um, The host committee has to buy its own tickets, up to 750 of them, 
because the league gets all the ticket sales. Like, the host committee doesn't even get that. Atlanta added all these enhancements to theirs, $2 million contribution towards certain NFL expenses, a possible $1 million contribution to complement state and city efforts, party money. Um, A lot of that comes because they actually exempt sales tax. So they're not even, like, taxing all the stuff that they normally would that would then go back into the economy. Um, and, And then the host committee promised to reimburse the league and its teams for any state or other local taxes that they had to pay, which they think is going to be another $2 million that they lose. Um, and, and on top of all of this, as part of their bid, when, when the committee was like up in front of the NFL people talking about it, they literally mentioned that the public has funded three Falcon stadiums over the past half century as like a, look, we'll put a lot of money into this. Um, and so it's, and then on top of that, I'm sorry, I know this is a lot, but like on top of that, both the city and state had to make substantial investments in emergency preparedness, winter response coordination, and road treatment capabilities. Like this is part of what the NFL expects. This is all to host a single event one time. Um, And so just to think of like, who do they really care about? They're displacing homeless people. The taxpayers are paying all this money. It's not going to even generate back the amount that it takes to do it. Um, I don't know. I like I it's really hard to to think through like what all is going into this. Yeah, precisely. I mean, and and not to mention that it's a a level 1 security event meaning federal workers are provided for the security clearances like at the same level as like the state of the union. And so um up until, you know, 2 days ago, the government was shut down. It was also um, a huge security issue as well. Brenda? Yeah, the issue of stadium public-private money and taxes is super intense. Um, there's a there's a weird... Do you, I don't know if you all ever read Field of Schemes. Would, yeah, uh, which is like... It was like a yes. journal and basically kind of in a blog now chronicles all of the stadium... Uh, local sort of things. The issue is you really have to get into the weeds to understand how these things work, like like Jess just did in Atlanta, you know, to follow and track the way in which these owners basically bankrupt the places in which they work. So, yes. like, this week it came out that the San Francisco 49ers will receive a $36 million refund from Santa Clara County after fighting the taxes that they pay for Levy Stadium. So, Um, The San Francisco Chronicle reported, for example, that what this will mean is that essentially the team will get a refund and its taxes will drop from 12 to $6 million a year. And this is because they argued that, and and just so we know, this comes out of public school money. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is all public school. This is how you fund the public schools. This is the same... This is the same as when L.A. Rams, um, and there's a beautiful article called The Silence of the Rams about this, bankrupted St. Louis schools and then left. And this is what they do. And the way that they do it is they they never want to own the stadium outright because that will mean they pay those taxes. So they all work out a deal where the local government either holds the deed to the stadium or half does it. And this isn't just the U.S. This is a scheme that FIFA has perfected and outlined for every World Cup. And what it means is that then the 49ers argue we should only pay half of what we would pay because we only use it during football season. Oh, my gosh. And that's what they argued. And to the point where the county assessor 
um, was looked so dismayed and called the decision, quote, shocking and unexpected because it means now basically it's $90 million they were planning on having for the public school district that they won't have anymore. Oh. So so the thing that's tough about this is it's hard to make a big narrative and just 49ers, Kaepernick, you know, screw yourselves anyway. But um, it just to say... It, it, it's so hard to get a narrative about this because everything is so in the weeds and local and local reporting yes. is good on it. And it's just hard to to collect it all and say, we know that they're scamming, but they're scamming differently in every place. Right. So in addition to the kind of Super Bowl and the, the, the displacement of homeless people, the rise in sex trafficking, the rise in militarization, which is just what happens when the game comes to town, there's a lot around the spectacle of the game itself. So not only the commercials, but the halftime show, the anthem performer. Um, Lindsay, you have thoughts on the halftime show? No, I mean, look, I think the first thing that caught my eye was – there was a big um, dust-up, I guess you could say, a week or so ago when Travis Scott, who was going to be one of the guest performers at the halftime show, came out and said uh, th- there was a quote from one of the sources in his team to Variety, I believe, saying, well, he uh, he and Kaepernick talked it out. and They don't agree, but they mutually <laughs> respect each other. <laughs> and uh, Kaepernick's team came out and was like, nah. <laughs> Every single person on his team was, like, retweeting things. It was just, like, absolutely not. Like, if you were playing for the NFL, if you were supporting these NFL causes, like, you are not on our side. Like, there's no – you can't do this both ways. And and I just thought that was, was fascinating. I mean, there were so many high-profile artists who did say that they weren't going to um, perform at the Super Bowl because of – um, what the NFL has done to Kaepernick, it's notable to see who actually felt comfortable doing it. And so, you you know, you're left with Maroon 5, you're left with Travis Scott. And I know, Amir, you probably have uh, some feelings right. on right. Gladys well, Knight doing the National Rihanna, Anthem. Um, Brenda's favorite. Uh, <laughs> it is, it is, it is. It is. <laughs> um, who, you know, was one of many who was like, uh, actually kick rocks. Um <laughs> But yeah, so Gladys Knight mm. uh, is singing the anthem and, um, you know, talked about how she wants to reframe the anthem and, and make it, uh, reinvest it with meaning since we've thought about it, you know, through the lens of Kaepernick's protest and that she wants to like give it back its dignity and, and yada yada. And so this is, she's doing the anthem. Um, so that will be, you know, uh, interesting um i mean i think she'll sing it very well um but you know i personally was looking forward to another kind of like fergie debacle (laughs) that resulted in like a mashup with a beat behind it but yeah no i mean i think it's hard i write about how um the league has constantly outspectacled itself around the super bowl so um when commissioner pete rozelle in the 80s was conceiving of what he wanted the Super Bowl to look like. He famously said he wants it to be like 4th of July in February. (laughs) Um, And so I think, yeah, one of the things that you have with the Super Bowl is all the kind of militarization that we see week to week in the NFL. It really gets its genesis through the Super Bowl. Like that was what really kind of kicked it off before DOD contracts and all of that. 
one of the reasons why the DOD looked to the NFL is because they had this precedent, right, of hyper-militarizing, you know, the Super Bowl. You've had Super Bowls in the 80s and the early 90s where people were literally, like, airlifted in. You obviously have the flyovers. Um, and so there's it's always been infused with, like, a really heightened sense of Americana um, at the game. And I think, you know, obviously wearing the mantra of, like, the, the biggest unofficial holiday in the United States, you know, we really should have that Monday off. Um, and I think that goes along with it. So that's when the anthem gets televised. We'll see what Gladys Knight does. And she has, you know, it's been a discussion, but I think most people kind of roll their eyes because, like, respect is, ob- like, she's somebody who you respect. So I think it's one of those things where people have kind of, like, grown and rolled their eyes and been like, ugh. But, um, yeah, it's it's... I don't, I don't even, I'm just like. And I, I mean, it does matter that it's like this particular moment, right? Because not that we, right. I mean, this is a country of white supremacy, but we are having a specific moment of resurgent white nationalism um, that's tied very deeply into ideas of patriotism uh, and, and the flag and, and all this other stuff. And so for that to, this, there's nothing apolitical about that spectacle and especially not at a moment like this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So once we get past the (laughs) terribleness and the spectacle and the singing and the halftime show, um, then there's the actual How are you doing, Amira? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm terrible. Yeah, like I don't I I I don't think that you can uh, if you'd see me during. So I tried this thing this year where I like didn't watch anything like leading up to the game like I didn't really even I didn't watch a lot of this season like I'm trying to wean myself off of football um so I was like you know what I don't care like I'm not gonna care whatever so I watched the AFC championship game and I was doing okay until like the fourth quarter and if anybody's ever seen me watch a game like know that like as much as I try it not to be like it becomes a full body experience I would I I would like to watch that with you Oh, it's a wreck. Like, I'm not, it's not, like, I'm curled up in the corner because, like, my stomach hurts. I can't eat. Like, it's really inexplicable. Like, I think it's, like, a real problem. Um, And it's gotten a little better over the years, but it's not, like, it's not, when I say it's not enjoyable for me, it's because I'm, like, in physical pain, like, until we're, like, comfortably ahead. So... Yeah, it's, like, really Oh, my intense. God. And so this year I was, like, I'm not going to care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And then I, like, casually put on the game, and I was, like, I'm so not caring. Look at me. I'm being really great. And then the fourth quarter happened, and I, like, had to cut off the game because it was making me too anxious. So I there's a Patriots chat room, um, and they're usually a play ahead of the TV. So I just was, like, refreshing the chat room and oh, pacing. Um and like because they were playing away i knew if i heard like cheers in the other room like that was going to be bad so i spent the entire like fourth quarter doing that um and literally immediately like had this sense of adrenaline and relief when we pulled it off and i think that lasted for about two and a half hours and then i was like i have to sit through another (laughs) super bowl so um i'm so that's how i'm doing which is not well um, but I also am one for narrative, and so I appreciate the narrative <laughs> arc of playing the Rams. I honestly think, like, you know, everybody who hates us, like, if you just, like, if we win this one, like, I think they'll just ride off into the sunset. So, like, you know, I think that oh, we, we know. <laughs> I think that it's that not should be happen. what happens. And then, you know, we can just end. But I do, um, 
it ha- this team has brought me since I was a kid such remarkable joy and like it's actually astounding to be in a third straight Super Bowl um, and to have this run so I am also appreciative of that um, but yeah so the game itself I'm not looking forward to um, this team is confusing to me I don't understand why they're good like this they haven't impressed me all year um, and I'm kind of shocked every time they win but I would say that they kind of have internal thing with them if you listen to the mic'd up versions of uh the afc game you'll hear patriot players yelling at tom the whole time like you're too old um and they'll yell at each other you're too slow so they really like brought this like underdog motivation thing and like are really i know it's amazing (laughs) which is just i'm sorry ridiculous because like nobody actually is saying the only person i've heard all year say that the patriots are bad is bill simmons (laughs) on his podcast and he's the number one patriots fan and it's like it's like a it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where all the Patriots fans are like, this isn't a good team. This isn't a good team. And then they're like, nobody believes in us. I mean, there was, there's like, like, what is happening? And there's like an amazing stat about how many Super Bowls, (laughs) Super Bowls Tom Brady has been in like more. um, Yeah. Yeah. And like more than most NFL teams. (laughs) I mean, like he is a, I, you know, whatever you think about him outside of his play, he is unbelievable. I mean, that we have lived through the Tom Brady era is something I think we'll all look back on later and just marvel at. Can I ask you something, Amira, though, on that point? Yeah. And, like, I don't, I, you know, for me, like, I'm living through Messi, so Tom Brady's almost meaningless to me. Um, but <laughs> I have a real point. I know that's, like, obnoxious and terrible, but it's true. Um what pa- what Patriots should we be rooting for if we do happen to hate Tom Brady? So my so if you know me, you know like Tom is like there to me. Like I've always been obsessed with the defense, and you know there's a million really dope people on this team. My favorite Patriots right now are the McCourty twins. Um, they are my favorite storyline. So uh, Devin McCourty has played for the Patriots for nine seasons. His twin brother Jason McCourty, who mm-hmm. entered the league a year before him. Um, played on the Tennessee Titans and then played on the Cleveland Browns when they never won a game. He Up until this year when he joined the Patriots, he had never even been to a playoff game. Um, And so to have your identical twin brother play for the Patriots while you have never even played past December um, is is remarkable. So this year he's on the Patriots. He was brought into the Patriots um, and it was he was on the bubble all through training camp. Didn't look like he was actually going to make the team. And now he's a starter. Um, and he's playing with his brother again and their joy, their mom is amazing. They have a joint Instagram. (laughs) They have a joint Twitter handle. Um, He wrote a piece in the Players Tribune about this, um, you know, what it felt like to be playing with his brother again. And there's this moment after the AFC Championship game where they just jump into each other's arms and are holding each other so tight and Devin saying, welcome to the soup. And for me, it's like they are my absolute favorite right now because I'm just Jason is you can see the joy that he has. So those are my ones to watch. Matthew Slater is amazing. He's a special teams guy who has made himself a captain on the team through his special teams play. And for, you know, those who don't aren't as into football is generally not, you know, a skilled position. It's an important facet of the game, but it often gets overlooked to have a a guy like Matthew Slater be such an integral part of the team and be a captain as a special teamer speaks to a how much special teams is valued but how amazing Matt is in the locker room um so 
those are my players. And also the McCourty Twins have been, you know, very involved in doing equal justice initiatives. They've partnered with Harvard looking at um, disparities in police brutality against black um, folks in the area. Um, and I, they, they are like the ones that I'm watching. Awesome. Right now, That's convincing. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I'm kind of sold. And there's a lot of other really cool people too. Yeah. And so then on the other side of it, you know, to talk about the Rams a little bit, you have a team that was moved, as you know, we mentioned, um, out of St. Louis to LA, one of two teams to get there. And I don't know if anybody saw that video circulating of. LA fans in the bar after they won um, like kind of just glancing up so there's also this discussion of yeah, you know people are framing this as another kind of Boston LA championship right after the Red Sox and Dodgers obviously but in the tradition of the Celtics and the Lakers but it doesn't feel like an LA team for me no like, I forget where they are like I actually forget they're in <laughs> Los Angeles sometimes and I have to like really think through it it makes me sad because as much as, you know, I'm glad that St. Louis doesn't have to deal with the money and the tax problems and, you know what I mean, like yeah. all of that. It was still a big part of St. Louis, right? The St. Louis Rams. And they had really grown and built there. And then for them to leave and immediately have the success is got to be really difficult. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to see. I mean, you have both t- L.A. teams. The Chargers had a really good season, too. So I'm going to be curious to see um, what happens. Um, so we'll be watching. Does anybody have any um, commercials they're looking forward to? Big Cardi B. Plans? She's got any a Pepsi commercial. Cardi's got a Pepsi Cardi? commercial, apparently. There was a teaser or something. That's it. That's Ooh. all I know about it. <laughs> That's the only commercial I've seen <laughs> anything about. But I'm here for it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Jess? Yeah, so my burn pile today is lighter than normal, but that's in large part because the longest ever government shutdown in the United States is temporarily over at this point. It would be more outrageous if that was still currently going on. But still, I cannot believe this happened on Friday before Trump announced that the government would reopen for three weeks. This was at a point in time where hundreds of thousands of government workers had missed multiple paychecks, many were turning to their communities for financial and food support, and airports were shutting down because of issues over safety. As as all of that was still happening, Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy took to the floor of the Senate. Behind him, on giant boards resting on easels, were two images. The first was the cover of the Times-Picayune with the headline, Reffing Unbelievable, and an image of a Los Angeles Rams cornerback's helmet-to-helmet hit on a Saints wideout at the end of the NFC Championship game, which was not called on the field, and had it been called, would have clinched the game for New Orleans and sent them to the Super Bowl. In the end, as we all know, the Rams won. On Cassidy's other giant board was a blown-up image of the hit. On the Chiron, on C-SPAN, below Cassidy were the words, (laughs) Government Shutdown Day 35. Here is how Deadspin explained what Cassidy did that day. Quote, This dork went on for over five minutes, stiffly making his way through an explanation of the play before coming to his point, which is that referees should receive letter grades after each game. This is what sports radio rants would sound like if everyone who called into sports radio shows did so from outside the steam room at their country club. So (laughs) sports fandom can be great. But too often, it's fucking ridiculous. And on Friday afternoon, this was pure garbage sports fandom, whether it's because Cassidy himself cares deeply about the Saints or because he knows that his constituents do. Either way, 
What a gross display of bad priorities. Burn it. Burn. Sticking on football, but college football at this time. So on, on this past Monday when we, the nation, except for the states who refused to recognize Martin Luther King Day, um, I buckled in for a day of appropriation and misquotes and whatnot, and I was not disappointed. Um, Steve King, uh, Mike Pence, just completely, like, it was a mess. The NRA, the CIA, the FBI, like, tweeting about his legacy like they didn't actually kill him. Like, I can't. Um, So usually I buckle in because I feel like I know what this day looks like, and I just, like, prepare to roll my eyes at it. Something this week caught me off guard. What I was not prepared for was the Florida State recruiting team's Twitter handle tweeting out that image of Martin Luther King with his hand extended speaking um, on the on the National Mall and putting it in and making it with a glove on it, making him do the tomahawk chop. Tomahawk chop. Saying... Uh, yeah. It, 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 yeah. I, it's so I bad. Just, yeah. It combines so many terrible things that it like just like I, it actually surprised me. Like I actually had no words and I was just like I I didn't think that there's a way to be shocked by appropriation, but that one got me. And it was like let us find a way to completely miss appropriate and use uh, this legacy of a person who we don't even understand who it is and combined it with racist native imagery and movements and put it all together in a week where we've seen as just so eloquently wrote about that that very signal being wielded against you know indigenous elders on this land on the national mall you have all of this happening and somebody somewhere thought it was a good idea to make martin luther king jr do the tomahawk chop like, yes, because he died for your football team. Like, I don't, what is this? This is madness. Absolute madness, and I want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. Burn, burn, burn. Brenda? So, um, basically, Macarena Sanchez, who's one of my favorite players for Argentina, she plays for Wairquiza, the same as Gabriela Garton, who we've interviewed on this podcast. It's a really prominent women's team in Argentina launched a lawsuit, the first ever lawsuit against a club, as far as I know, in Argentina by a woman player because they fired her after six years. So Wire Kisa sat her down this week, fired her, and they did it in the middle of the season, meaning she's totally unemployed for the next six months um, by, you know, regulation. And in addition to that, it violated all kinds of labor um, organize, well, all sorts of labor codes and regulations that have to do with workers just in Argentina. Also, it has violated all labor condition contracts with FIFPRO or the International Men's Union, which has also started to incorporate women. So basically, she has made the equivalent of, you know, she's a top professional in Argentina. They won the three championships. They went to the Confederations Cup and were third place, I think, in Copa Libertadores uh, while she played there. And she's made the equivalent of a couple hundred dollars a month. And then they just fired her and the firing is immediate and awful. And so she and I, I have to say, I've watched her come out as a pretty strong feminist voice for Argentine women's football. And I know it's related. I don't have proof and I don't have evidence, but I just know it. 
Um, and basically, in all of this, there's a fight, and the president of women's football wouldn't respond to all of this lawsuit stuff. He left being um, president of AFA, of the whole federation of all Argentine women's football, and guess uh-huh. where he went? He's president of Wairakisa. Wow. So, um, oh so God. it's all awful, and um, I wish Maka the best, and I'd also just like to burn... All of the terrible ways in which people would defend professionals in any other realm but this one burn. in Argentina. So burn. Burn. Mm. burn. Burn. Shireen? Yeah, my uh, burn this week has to do with uh, irritating men in media and, you know, women's hockey. So Tim McAuliffe... Uh, has a show on Sportsnet in Canada, and he invited Natalie Spooner, who's on the Canadian national team, plays for the Toronto Furies, and he had her, and his show is called the Tim and Sid Show, and Dan Harbridge actually tweeted out a clip of this interview where he's talking and sort of self-aggrandizing about how media, you know, what they need to do, but media really isn't the problem in growing the game, so he's got Spooner on there, and he's basically like, how do we grow the game when it's really not the issue of media not showing, like he's trying to circumvent a very basic point. And the whole interview was cringeworthy and like Spooner was so patient and very, very dignified and even went so much as to say, well, why don't you start by coming to our games on Sunday? Do you want a ticket? Like it was just like so obvious, which he brushed off. And I mean, I think the base problem with this is that he actually thinks he was intelligent in this approach and i i can't even tell you the level of like again groans and like head banging that was happening around by uh, people who are actual media folks of women's hockey that were like this is such a vacuous question this is so embarrassing for media like actually do you even understand what you're saying so the entire approach the way of questioning to have her on there and you know like i said she was incredibly poised with this question and incredibly patient and polite. Like, I would have been like, you're an asshole. You're really, really, really subpar in terms of your concept of what, and media is absolutely culpable. Like, you know, what is it? 4% of media is like showing women's sports in Canada. It's really, really pathetic. And to ask this, this woman's on the Canadian national team and like, yeah, you set aside your sexism for nationalism every time they bring home like a gold medal or world championship. But like to ask this is really, really, ridiculous. So I want to burn that. I burn that segment specifically and burn these types of questions from men in media who think that this approach or this concept is actually acceptable. Burn. 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 Lindsay, bring us home. Yeah, um, this isn't directly sports related, but it's all that's on my mind this week. So this is where I'm going. Um, Over a thousand people across the media industry and journalism uh, lost their jobs this week. Um, there were mass layoffs at Gannett, which is a um, company that owns a lot of newspapers across the country, USA Today, Indie Star, I mean, tons of local papers. Um, so Gannett laid off a bunch of people, as did Huffington Post and BuzzFeed News. These cuts impacted some of the most talented people in this industry. We are talking Pulitzer Prize winners, <laughs> you know, no- nominees. I mean, people whose stories and reporting have changed people's lives. These cuts disproportionately, as these cuts usually do, impacted 
people of color, people reporting on reproductive health and poverty, and people reporting on queer communities. It is absolutely devastating to see these conglomerates. Um, BuzzFeed and yeah. Verizon, which owns Huffington Post, and Gannett Media, these, are, these companies have money. But because they're owned by investors, because they're so deep in capitalism, they have to keep getting, increasing their profit margins so that their investors can get more and more money back, which means that they're laying off people who are bringing in traffic, who are winning awards, who are doing their jobs well. But the most devastating thing about all of this is the way a certain fraction of society has reacted. I know, you know, among those impacted was, you know, Jess, who's had a great column at Huffington Post. I know she would be the first to say that, you know, we should be first worried about the people who lost their full time jobs and their health insurance. But, you know, it just shows that the wide impact this has on freelancers. I've been a freelancer whose company has laid off my editors and it's devastating But you also have all of these right-wing trolls who are gleefully going about this on social media, who are going to the people who have been laid off, who have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, and who are gloating in their faces. And that includes the president of the United States, who just today tweeted out um, praise for BuzzFeed and... Huffington Post for laying off people, calling them fake news and saying that this is just what happens. Once again, this is the president of the United States joyfully celebrating the loss of a thousand jobs that are really crucial to the fabric of our democracy. So I want to throw all this on the burn pile. I want to send out my love to anyone who lost their job this past week in media in There's got to be a better way forward than this because we need more journalists today, not fewer. Burn. 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 It's time to shout out some badass women. I want to start by sending our condolences to the family of Jerry Ann Glasgow, who was a standout Oregon Ducks softball player and a high-profile member of USA Softball, who sadly and tragically lost her life this past week in a car accident. Um, She will be sorely missed by her team, by the team which she was set to coach in Louisiana, and by the entire USA Softball community. We are sending our condolences to your family and friends. Shout out to all four Olympians of Canada and the United States who showed out and showed up to the NHL skills competition this past weekend. As we mentioned, Kendall Coyne Schofield became the first woman to compete in the NHL skills competition. And also shout out to Renata Fast um, in the accuracy shooting contest, Brianna Decker in the premier passer contest, and Rebecca Johnson in the puck control contest. Thank you all for being tremendous ambassadors for the game. Staying on the ice, I want to shout out Kuwait's women's hockey team, who will be making their International Ice Hockey Federation debut at the 2019 Challenge Cup of Asia in April. Can't wait to see you guys in action. Um, Switching over to soccer, let's shout out Aussie Sam Kerr for being the top scoring player in not one, but two leagues, the NWSL as well as Australia's W League. The 25-year-old is a phenom. She currently plays with the Chicago Red Stars. Keep on killing it out there, Sam. We see you. 
And a few more shout-outs to some more Canadians. Cougar rugby head coach and the University of Regina's women's hockey assistant coach, Julie Foster, will be inducted into Rugby Canada's Hall of Fame on March 7th. Congratulations, Julie. And Mirella Reneva won gold in the skeleton at the World Cup in St. Moritz. The 30-year-old Ottawa racer gave Canada its first win in any World Cup sliding event, bobsled, skeleton, or luge. Congratulations. I want to shout out Petra Kvitova for a marvelous showing at the Australian Open. We recognize your journey back to the court and are thrilled to see you swing that racket again so well. To Chloe Kim for her fifth X Game gold in the snowboarding half pipe. Fifth. That's wild. Congrats, Chloe. And lastly, to Tuta Mionki, who made history after being announced the Kenyan Motorsport Personality of the Year in 2018 at the annual awards ceremony held in Nairobi. This celebrated rally co-driver is the first woman to ever win this coveted post in Kenya. And now, drum roll, please. <laughs> the badass woman of the week is Naomi Osaka, who won her second straight Grand Slam title, becoming the first Asian woman to be the world number one. Um, and also this week called out her sponsor Nissan for lighting her up in promotional material and for constantly giving the best post game speeches. Uh, Naomi, congratulations. We are so thrilled for you um, and look forward to many more Grand Slams to come. All right, y'all. I want to know what's good in your weeks. Shireen? Thanks, Samira. Um, I am really excited about something that I can't just yet disclose, so I'm just going to leave it there. And my baby girl, Jihad, turns 17 on the 30th, oh, wow. which is also another Ooh. Bayad baby day. Um, so that's pretty, that's pretty fantastic, and I'm excited about that. And it's snowing, and I went skating yesterday, and it was excellent. I was, like, trying to be Soraya Bonnelly, but that really didn't happen. So... Um, but that's okay. So the best I did was sort of, the best I did was like sway to like <laughs> Selena Gomez's song that was playing, but that's all right. That's fine. And so that was, that was lovely. Lindsay? Yeah, I've been trying some new things out, so I'm proud of myself. I went to a Pilates class oh. last week and I'm going to another one in a little bit. So, uh, you know, trying to step out of my comfort zone with a few things. And that was kind of my new year's resolution. And I'm happy that it's, that it's continuing. That sounds awesome. So I am really excited because my little cousin, um, who I talked about a lot on the show, transferred to Rutgers, um, which means that she's in the Big Ten. So she'll be playing in awesome. Penn State multiple times a year, and I get to see her. Um, and to, you know, exclamate that point, I drove this weekend to New Jersey for other things, but also to see her. Um, picked her up, and it was just so great. I'm already so hyped to have family um, closer to me. It's really hard when all your family lives far away. And I was, I'm just so excited to have her on the East Coast. Um, today that we record this on the 27th is my big brother's birthday, as well as my little sister's birthday and a good childhood friends. This is a big day for me. It was also the day Samari was supposed to be born, but we know that she's a diva and needs her own spotlight. So of course she, um, was not born on today, uh, which is now funny because of course she, uh, shares a birthday with Shireen's daughter. So, um, Aww. on the 30th, Samari will be 11. Uh, happy birthday to you, baby girl. Jess? Yeah, uh, so I won't be here next weekend because Aaron and I are going to Northern California for about six days. We are celebrating being together for 20 years. We got 
I mean, we got together wow. when we were just little babies. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to go walk through some giant redwood trees, and we're going to drink some wine, and we're going to chill out. So I'm super excited about that. Yay. Bren? Hardest part of show for me always. Um, and I'm so grateful for keeping <laughs> keeping positive on it. Okay, um, Golden State Warriors, did you all see them have their meeting <laughs> yes. with Obama? Okay, like, it's not personal, except that I try to keep away from news because usually I get all upset and anxious and it can lead me to cry or break things or any number of things. And for some odd reason, uh, I don't know, just looking at sports, I was like, hey, something good. Um, You know, Golden State Warriors snub President Trump and um, get a little personal meeting with Barack Obama. And (laughs) I don't know, the pictures made me really happy. That's it for this week on Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but you can also find it on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, as well as on Instagram. Please check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find links to the show, show notes, transcripts, as well as links to our Patreon campaign, which for a reminder, for just two as little as $2 a month, you get access to exclusive content, our monthly newsletter, as well as hot take and additional interviews and giveaways. So check out our Patreon page. And also be on the lookout for our Teespring page where you get all your Burn It All Down merchandise needs, especially because we have some new merch coming your way very soon please rate subscribe we love hearing your feedback we love engaging with the um our flamethrowers so don't be a stranger let us know what you want to see what we're doing well and share it with those around you so again from me amir rose davis along with jessica luther lindsey gibbs shereen ahmed and brenda elsie we'll see you next week flamethrowers oh!